state of California, you know, it's always been America's coming attraction. Millions of destinies connected by one dream, to be whoever you want to be. This year marks the 40th anniversary of Proposition 13, and changes to it have made it to the November ballot. Should Pacific Gas and Electric be 100% liable for the fire damage and death in Santa Rosa? And should California establish state-backed banks for marijuana dispensaries? That's what's coming up in this episode of California Street. You're listening to the California Streaming Podcast with Bobby, Jonathan, and Louie. We're just three conservative friends trying to provide some counterbalance in one of the most liberal states in the union. So hop on our magic choo-choo train to nowhere and let's talk some California politics. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I always love that magic choo-choo train. <laughs> it's our magic choo-choo train to nowhere here in California. And the election results are in. Yeah. What you heard at the beginning of the episode was Gavin Newsom's quote-unquote victory speech. Apparently he... Uh, well, he made, he made a good... He wanted to not make it a victory that's right. speech. That's said. right. There's a lot of work. It's halftime. There's I a lot of work to quote. be done still. So. A lot of work. Right. Yeah. And we need him to do it. I was actually surprised how well Cox did. I mean, I think he got the POTUS push. But oh, definitely. I was very surprised to see and Tony V... Did I would not do so well. He did not even do well in Los Angeles. I went into that evening totally thinking it was going to be Gavin and Villaraigosa. Well, when you look at both of these gubernatorial candidates, they're exactly the same people. They they believe the same thing. They're both tools of the Democrat Party. So you're just really flipping a coin. And who had the higher office at the time? Well, it was Gavin Newsom. It was basically. The Democrat Party anointed him. Sure. And they said, you're going to be our representative. That's it. I'm sure J- uh, Chang had a reasonable platform to go on, but nobody knows who the heck he is. It's funny. We're going to hear from that guy, I think, a little bit. Uh, yeah, we are. A little I, bit later. I think what's funny, though, is you saw, even in Los Angeles, where Villagrosa was mayor for, for years, he did not do well. And I think... It kind of shows you what people thought of his mayoral tenure well, in right. the city. You're a former constituent, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, not, uh, not a constituent, but a resident. <laughs> Those are much different yeah. phrases. I want emancipation now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get in our first topic today. Big one. It's kind of what uh, a cornerstone of California propositions for the most part. 2018 is the 40th anniversary of Prop 13 in the state. And there's actually changes that are going to be brought to the ballot in November or proposed changes. Uh, for those that don't know what Prop 13 is, it can actually be summed up in two, two parts. So basically, we voted in the 70s. Uh, property tax kept going up. People said they couldn't afford it. So what we did was we capped property tax rates at 1% of the, um, of the cash value of the property and then they couldn't be increased by more than 2% each year thereof. Uh, There are pros and cons to Prop 13. I think some of the biggest ones are that if you bought a house, say, in the 70s for 100 grand, and it's worth 900 grand today, you're still paying property tax based on that $100,000 home. 
the proposed changes are that if you're 55 or older or severely disabled, uh, your your property tax would transfer to the replacement residence. Um, so basically, if you bought a house for a hundred grand and then you moved, you got to pay property tax at whatever your old rate was. Um, thoughts? Well, the first thing that I wanted to counterpoint on that. Sure, we're assessing the property value at the old property value rate, what they purchased it at. So if we were to reassess all the property here in California, according to whatever it is that the fair market value is today, then every single individual who owns their own home and have been living there for a good long while, we're talking senior citizens, they're going to be up a river here they're going to be the ones most affected by the reassessment of their values. I take a look at my own grandfather who bought a home here in Southern California. He bought it for $50,000 way back in the 60s. Now it's almost a million-dollar valuation. It's just a 50s track home that he bought a long, long time ago. What's going to happen? Who's Who's going to cry him a river? The state wants the money. They need the money. But but isn't that the carve out that Louis was just describing? In ter- let, let's let me make sure I understand this right, because just to go over this again. So if I'm over fifty five and I sell my home, let's say it's your grandfather, right? And I sell my home for a, for a million dollars, and I get a, I I need to move somewhere, let's say, and I buy a new home. I still get to carry my fifty thousand dollar basis into the new home, right? Which at the end of the day, right, it's just a carve out for this segment of people based on, I'm assuming given the housing prices in this state, uh, they, they want to make sure that this demographic from a, uh, bills perspective, social security living on, you know, a right. lot of, of times paycheck to paycheck. They don't want an, a sudden increase, a bump up right in their yearly monthly bills for their housing. It, it sounds like that's at the root of this carve out. You know, an interesting right. thing also is that my grandfather outlived his own brother. And he has, uh, inherited his brother's property at a new market value. Mm. These kind of things happen too. I, I think where people, um, where most people will tell you the issue lies is with commercial property and not so much residential property because you've got, you got big parcels of commercial property that were worth maybe $50,000 as a warehouse back in the 70s or 80s, and now they're $4 million you know, places in commercial areas that have developed over time or their tech companies, their manufacturing. And so now their property, they're still paying property tax at that old rate. And with commercial property, it's, it's typically a lot of times it's a, a lease relationship. So the property owners paying the old rate. Meanwhile, they're still churning in uh, tenants at say the market value of what rent is today, but paying property tax on an old rate. We're talking about residential structures where, yeah, you might be in your home for 30 years. Now you can't pay for the property tax bill because if you were to get reassessed with today's inflated prices in California, sure. I totally see that commercial property is like a whole different story though, because you might own the same swath of land for decades, but now you're collecting 2018 rates and infrastructure has changed around you. You might even be using way more infrastructure than you did as a warehouse. So let me play, let me do the scenario. Um, 
we have the senior citizens who get the the stay. They don't have to play by the new rules. But what about everybody who wants to own a home in the future? Property values are sky high right now. I mean, you're looking at a three-bedroom home that costs a million dollars here, and that's just your run-of-the-mill home, whereas anywhere else in the country, it's, you know, $50,000 if that. Well, that's I, that's part of when I realized I was kind of an adult is, you know, I'll fantasize and look at these homes on Redfin or Trulia, and you're like, oh, man, $13 million beachfront property in Hope Ranch or something like that, and then you start thinking, Damn, what's the property tax bill on that? And that's the nut you got to come up with every single year, or, you know, twice a year. <laughs> it's like, and what happens when you don't pay it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that goes to the whole question of do do you really own your property? That's a whole separate discussion. But right, try not paying your property tax for something you might not even have a mortgage on. You'll find out real fast if you actually own what you think you own. Right, and I, I should add too, because uh, we kind of got into the commercial side of it. Part of the redaction that's coming in November's ballot for Prop 13 is that it would remove the tax limitations on commercial property. Uh, And the backers of the whole thing are the ACLU, the League of Women Voters of California, and the California Federation of Teachers. So you're probably wondering what the teachers have to do with it. And part of the argument with Prop 13 is that the infrastructure needs don't get their due of taxes, so whether that's public safety um, you know, sewer, water, electric, or the schools that service that particular housing track, they don't get the true, you know, payout of what they should get. And then you get into like Melarus taxes and everything else. For me, at the root of this is the concept that corporations, businesses, they don't pay taxes. This This table doesn't pay a tax. Some magic entity called an LLC doesn't pay a tax. People pay taxes, right? Ultimately, the business, the commercial property, whoever owns that, renting it out, et cetera, is trying to make a profit. If you raise costs on them via a tax, they don't, we've talked about this off air before, and it's like the Scrooge McDuck theory. I think a lot of times liberals will levy taxes on businesses because they think out in the back of the business is a big bank and vault where they're swimming through coins of the old of, Scrooge McDuck, yeah, right? Eh? Right. Yeah. And so all you're going to do when you levy an additional business tax on these businesses is lower the the height of the gold coins slightly. That's absurd. Again, businesses don't pay taxes. We talk all the time federally. We recently did write about the corporate tax rate, etc. That's all good and interesting, but it's a derivative. Ultimately, you and I as people who live in California, are going to pay that tax. You're not going to see it tomorrow. You might not even see it in a couple months. It will flow down. So I get the the, the heartstring argument that, well, we're not touching residential property and people. We're just, we're just going to tax the corporation. I know from the place that I work at and many of the other places that I know that I've talked to other accountants about, they, uh, that is the commercial property owner, have rolled in together the property tax inside the lease. They pay it together. So the property owner, the commercial landlord, is not paying the property tax. They're, they're just in charge of four walls and a roof. And it is up to the tenant, 
for the upkeep, the modeling, and now the property tax. They've rolled it all together. Exactly. So when we raise the tax on the corporation, uh, uh, the corporate building side, the commercial building, we're, like John said, we're eventually going to raise the cost of doing business. And it also then touches back onto the topic that a lot of liberals in the state like to talk about is we just want progressive taxation, right? And they want to avoid regressive tax. We just saw the, one of the most regressive taxes implemented in this state with the fuel tax, right? I would argue that this is going to be another regressive tax because take a commercial property that's renting out to a Starbucks, to a CVS, etc. I don't think those places are solely frequented by millionaires and billionaires. So those tenants are going to have to pass on. Now, granted, if it's a larger corporation, I would agree that they can spread it over all of their stores across the nation. But let's mom and pop coffee shops, right? We're under the impression that Prop 13 has actually kept our property taxes at 1%. But this is not accurate because all over the state, in various counties and municipalities, they often come across school bonds or fire hazard taxes or some other kind of tax. Or Melarus fees and new housing tracts. And they they charge the citizens of that area a special property property tax on top of the Prop 13. It's a a special assessment, Uh Bobby, not a tax. Mm -hmm. Sure it is. Tell me otherwise. But but so it does beg the question, though, if you build a brand new housing track and it's going to impede on the existing infrastructure or maybe it will require you to put in another fire station or another school, whatever it might be, and it's going to be more expensive than 1% of those housing costs, then what is the way to get a... We've artificially capped the property tax, right? Going against kind of the free market kind of dictates. I know in this case, we've got the government kind of dictating. But what if it costs more than 1% of the property tax of that housing track to make it in compliant with what it needs infrastructure-wise? What is the answer to that, right? So it comes in the special assessments and bonds and everything else because you're capped out at the 1% of property tax. But what if 1% isn't the true value of what you need to sustain that area? But from a high level, there's an argument to be made in there, though, that in on some of these bonds I know we're talking about, it, it becomes more and more local, right, that those assessments are given. And, and I think, I know for me, that's where a big point of resistance is, right, is when you're talking about undoing Prop 13, the first thought is, well, I'm then talking about more money directly flowing to Sacramento, versus, which is a different argument than more money is going to flow to my county. So are you saying that the rate should be completely dependent on your city or your county or or, or who who should ultimately set the rate? Well, I think, yeah, back to the point, I think because anytime you do something, let's, let's go macro, right, on the federal level, you're saying we know something that needs to be done for every citizen in the entire United States and then take it all the way down the scale to when you're doing something on a city or a county level, you're getting more customized. So, you know, all things being equal, I think the more customized you can make it, and so the more variable 
the rate is to the area that you live. Look, as, as, a, as a resident of a, of a certain county, then I have more options, right, if I want to move out of the county, if I want to move out of the state. I, I was talking to somebody about this earlier today. That's what makes federal laws the trickiest is I, my options are pretty limited, right? Well, again, follow the money. There's a lot of money to be made from raising taxes. I'm sorry, whatever you want to say, measure, assessment. Fee. Fee. Assessment. Penalties. Penalties for living. Uh, back in 1978, uh, before Prop 13 was assessed, uh, the schools used to derive most of their fundage from property taxes. In fact, the state was running about a $9 billion budget for the schools. And then when Prop 13 came about, it dropped about $6 billion. So you can see how much it impacted them straight today. Now, today, only about 20% of our taxes from property actually go to fund our schools. Otherwise, it comes from the state government directly instead of the county. Now, they're already priced to sell this as we need to raise taxes in order to fund schools. And believe me, the schools are not doing so well these days. We're already 47th in the country as when it comes to schools. But but if I if the statistic that I saw is accurate, we're 26th in per pupil spending, right? right? So, which isn't great, but it's also not horrible. Middle of the road, right? But again, it's a one. It's just another form of taxation. We're already paying an income tax. We're already paying a sales tax. We have a property tax at one percent, and it's holding steady at one percent, but. Generally, most states don't levy three of the biggest taxes like that in their state. They usually only have one, maybe two, but not all three. When this final wall of Prop 13 comes down, we're by by far going to be the most heavily taxed state in the union. Well, and a lot of times, too, you'll see that states leverage income tax and property tax against each other. So if they don't have an income tax, they have a higher property tax or if they don't have property tax, they have a higher income tax. But you're exactly right. A lot of states don't leverage both of them against you, and then, you know, also at a high rate. I'm going to play real quick. I want to play a clip. I um, Doing a little bit of reading about Prop 13, I actually found a clip from an original news broadcast with Walter Cronkite, and, he, and in the news broadcast, they t- end up talking to a couple of uh, California residents about Prop 13. And it's just funny because some of their sentiments and their feeling, it's like they could be in the state today. Proposition 13 caused what may be a record voter turnout. For 25 years, we've had increasing taxes on properties. Now it's a chance for the people to say something about it. This excess in spending, I just feel it's just getting out of hand. It's kind of like a Boston Tea Party that we're saying we've had it. What year was that? Yeah, but it was 78, 79. Did she say Tea wow. Party? Right. The it bottom. could have been 2018. <laughs> right. Uh, excessive spending. Well, right. Um, they've kind of gotten that under control since the late 70s. Right. Done. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the budget at some point in one of these episodes. And there you go. It's all balanced, right? It's all balanced. <laughs> we have nothing to fear. Damn crazy conservatives and your weird agendas. Anything else? Everybody have anything else on Prop 13? We're going to have to see, I guess. <laughs> Now, it'll be interesting to come back here in, in one of our November episodes and see what actually happened. 
at the ballot box. Um, yeah, I don't really see anybody voting against it, though, right? Because all we're saying is, hey, I, first of all, it only affects old people. It only affects commercial property owners. And so we know old people are who go to the ballot box. Young and, people don't know anything about Prop 13. So. And they know from polls that overwhelmingly, right? We're going to uh, take from the rich and we're going to give it back to the poor. That's right. And overwhelmingly, people don't want the residential side touched. That polls like crazy. Well, but when, the commercial side, they, they have less of a problem. When Howard Jarvis wrote this bill, he wrote in there that it needed a two-thirds majority vote to get rid of Proposition 13. But they're finding a way to get around that, and they've been finding ways to get around it. So does our polling, do our votes actually matter when it comes to this? Well, cause especially right now at this time, Democrats are really close to a supermajority, but they don't even have it. Even if they did have it, I think they're like two votes short, two seats short right now. But with you have so many people moving up and down the ladder or going to Washington that they're going to have a bunch of vacancies. So I don't think they're going to have the two thirds vote anyways. But it's a good point. I mean, if you had a supermajority at the state, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted with it. All right. Next topic. This is kind of an interesting article I came upon. And it kind of provokes a bunch of questions on both sides. So Cal Fire released their report on the Santa Rosa fires last year, which killed, I think, 44 people and decimated a big chunk of the wine country. One of the biggest firestorms we ever saw until the Thomas fire a few months later, and then that was one of the biggest ones we ever saw. So that might be the new normal. But Cal Fire basically blames PG&E for a downline that sparked the whole incident. PG&E fired back and said that uh, their line maintenance and tree trimming program exceeds regulations and that their investigation is saying that an inadequacy of the emergency services, infrastructure, and water supply is what contributed to the fire being as massive as it was in taking the dozens of lives. We saw that, uh, I believe, well, what we're going to find out is that a downed line from Edison is what sparked the Thomas fire during a giant stretch of Santa Ana conditions that we'd never seen historically. I think it was like 12 or 13 days straight. And... These lines run through our passes and canyons in remote areas where winds get 80, 90 miles an hour. They drop and they spark fire. Edison has said, hey, if you're going to hold us accountable for this stuff, even when we do everything perfectly, then we're just going to turn the power off when the wind gets high. But then the State Utility Commission says, well, we're going to fine you for every second somebody doesn't have power. So... My question after that long-winded explanation is that, is this a good thing? Do we want to basically find these utilities into oblivion, hold them accountable for these things when it's kind of the risk we take by having electricity in general? We're not saying it was negligence either. We're just saying that their line fell. It's hard for me to see how they haven't over-constrained the, the the solution. So by that, I, I'm going to go, go, go down the math route here for one second. But right, if you remember back to like algebra, right, you're trying to solve an equation. And depending on how many stipulations you place on the solution, you, there, there is no answer, right? And that's how I feel about something like this. 
they have to check with California to set the rate, right? And that's what a lot of people are getting upset, I think, about this for is that Edison has uh, recently applied for a rate increase and they're thinking about preventing that because they see that as just a way to uh, get the money back for the lawsuits that they're about to have to pay out. But if you're if California is in charge or or heavily influencing when they can raise their rate, but they're also allowing them to be sued given the risk that Edison has on the table for operating as a business, there's no solution to that problem, right? A normal business in operation, and I and I understand that this is utility, but but a normal business in operation is going to, in theory, set their pricing, set their rates that they charge for their goods and services, and within what they're charging is compensation for the potential risk that lies for them operating their business. That's not able to happen here, unless I'm missing something. I took a look at a uh, law website, and they said the liability of an electric company for damage or injury is not covered by the principal contracts. Generally, in the injury cases related to transmitting, maintaining, or accidentally contacting electrical wires, the doctrine of strict products liability is not applicable. However, strict liability shall apply in the case of a stray voltage that is accidentally discharged into the ground. That is big law speak of saying you can try as hard as you may, but ultimately, act of God, you're not really liable for these kind of things. Now, was there huge wind? Of course there was. There always is. Could they have taken steps to... uh, lessen the impact on of fire danger. Yeah, but they're not allowed to. And Louis, the point Louis brought up that they've suggested of we're just going to shut off power, right? Obviously, it sounds like there's citizens, I, I listened to a couple of interviews, there's citizens who aren't a fan of that, understandably. And and is there something, has the state or the, the governing bodies weighed in to say that they're not allowed to do that or that won't be a possible solution? Because again, if that's true, that's back to, to me that's a possible solution, but if they can't do it, you're now still over constraining the problem. Well, I think, and this is where it gets to ridiculousness. When I was in Montecito during the mudslides, I got to talk to a representative from Edison. He was one of their bigger wigs who was out there trying to assess the situation. And he was telling me that even in this extremist case, they were being fined for every minute somebody didn't have power by the State Utilities Commission. And that's the, normal, uh, that's the normal fine rate for them. Every time somebody doesn't have power for X amount of time, they get fined for it. And he goes, I'm having to explain to people at the state that it's not a matter of uh, a parcel not having power. It's that a parcel no longer exists there, and they are no longer a subscriber. And that's where I see, like, I don't think they would be able to just turn the power off without some kind of repercussions, but maybe that's cheaper for them in the long run than paying out families for loss of life or loss of property. And weren't there instances where even if the property was still in existence, they they had limited access to even get there to try and bring power back up? Oh, sure. Right? So, I mean, it, yeah. And the same, uh, I was talking to my cousin works for uh, Southern California or for the gas company, SoCal Gas, and he was saying that, I mean, in the case of Montecito, they were just leaving old line in place, digging ditches and dropping new line in place like it was a new housing track because their goal was to get utilities restored as fast as possible. 
I'll also say from firsthand experience, these are not agencies or companies that lollygag. They are some of the hardest working, fastest moving people I've ever seen. You'll have fire engines still putting out embers and burning stumps as the fire front rolled through, and you have PG&E and Edison right behind you restoring power to the area. So their reactivity and proactivity to a lot of this, I don't doubt that they far exceed any kind of regulations on maintenance because they, the, the, the joke is that police officers' heroes are firemen and firemen's heroes are linemen because linemen are in there with le- less protection than everybody else getting power back on. And that's, and then how far do you take the can, right? Is it, they're also responsible for Montecito in the case of Edison, because Thomas fire may have contributed to the massive mudslides. When, when does their culpability or liability stop? What about the liability when someone is uh, mowing their lawn, they hit a rock, they cause a spark and then, a couple hundred acres goes up. Exactly. I, right? Is it a reasonable expectation for them to absorb the cost of... I think what's funny, on a local area thing, the fire department always wants to establish the responsibility area because most people can't pay the bill. So we'll just take Santa Barbara, for instance. If there was a fire that started somewhere in Santa Barbara, the first thing you kind of try to figure out on the admin side is who's who's paying for it because mm. most cities can't pay for a wildfire so you hope that it goes into some kind of county area and a lot of the county area actually absorbs responsibility for the state it's called state responsibility area where it might be the responsibility of california but cal fire doesn't have anything around here so santa barbara county will provide fire protection for fee so then once it gets into the SRA, the state now pays for it. And the state's open at some point it gets into the federal responsibility area like Los Padres. And then the feds are going to pay for it. So how are we going to expect John Q public mowing his lawn to pay for any of it? Right? Like, <laughs> well, back in college, I remember that we were discussing about a wildfire and someone's insurance would ultimately be responsible, especially a homeowner's insurance. When it came to such a wildfire, they pay the massive deductible on whatever they have to pay, but ultimately it fell upon the insurance carrier of that person's individual who was at legal fault. Well, in this case, the insurance carrier is going to just stop covering you. Well, sure. Right. But, and so, but that's after the fact. <laughs> yeah, after the fact. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but wouldn't it be on PG&E's uh, insurance carrier to pay out something that was clearly an accident? True, but I, I don't know if they ever planned on paying out something of that magnitude. And, and so it, how far do contributing factors go if it really was a, a derelict of the system that led to it getting that big? At what point is it no longer PG&E's fault? Right, okay, and even go down the road of, so let's say there is an insurance carrier on the hook, pays it out. I, I can only imagine the the subscription with the resubscription fee and new premium payment, right? That PG&E will be charged. And again, are they just going to go into their, their coin vault and swim around in a slightly? Well, I guess what you're ultimately saying is that this payout, wherever it stems from, it's going to be a line item on the books. And yeah, how will it re- not? Re- yeah. Revenue 
uh, minus expenses. Yeah. They, they're ultimately going to charge the consumer. And there we are. How will that not be? What yeah. happens? I just don't know how you set somebody up, whether it's a utility or anything, to where, yeah, you're going to provide the service. You're the only one who provides the service, by the way. And then anything that happens, we're going to hold you liable for it, even if you did everything right and an act of God created it. And then we're going to prevent you from charging more to try to recoup what you just had to pay out. Who, who the hell would get into that game? That's exactly my, my point of over-constraining it. Like you, there's no business solution to that problem. Well, and we talk about, uh, and I think we'll talk about it in the next segment, there is big gain comes from big risk. And I think it's a, the big gain here is we get electricity and we get it everywhere and we expect it to be 99.9% of the time on and so is that the risk we take for that? Well, let me throw you both of you a, a, a curveball because you're saying they're the only game in town. But on our, in our previous episode, we were talking about mandatory solar panels on every single person's roof going forward. So no longer is it going to be a monopoly. It's going to be individual homeowners who own uh, electricity companies on their own home. You, you Louie, own an electricity company, whether you think about it or not. I don't know whether you do. but It's true. At any given moment, it's an electric generator, and it can cause a spark if it's not properly maintained, right? Then are you in trouble? Are you going to be a mass-murdering psychopath? Well, that well, I kind of be. It's the same with the guy who um, mows his lawn, right? Sure. And sparks, or you know, uh, I don't know, but I guarantee you, I'll be named on a lawsuit. You know, I. It'll be me, you, the next guy at all, right? And but fr- from a from a different angle on what uh-huh. you were saying, Bobby, from a market forces perspective, it's a great thing. Now, now not the mandatory aspect is, as far as I'm concerned, uh-huh. but the rise in the technology that allows for alternate options, right, at someone's home for providing electricity, that's only going to lead ultimately to a good thing. Again, the mandatory aspect, we've already covered that, but it's great um, because depending on the state's continued involvement in the utility space, which is likely, um, yeah, from from a pure market perspective, I see it as good. Yeah, I just don't, I think we've over-restricted we've over-restricted them in every way. And I don't, I don't think it's a good thing to see them bankrupt. Right. I don't think that helps anybody. Uh, right. Other than political points uh, somehow, I guess, or for some people in Sacramento, but beyond that, right. I, I don't see the value. Well, they, they don't really get hurt if they're assessed a fine, unless we ditch that company right away and say, you're no longer in charge of this power plant. We're going to bring in someone else. But that usually takes a good long time, years and years of negotiating with a different company. Anything else? Anything? Well, we got an excellent pot. Right. We jam them. Oh, yeah, we need some Marley to introduce this one. So, interesting problem develops when your state law is at odds with federal law. So, the California Senate supports a state-backed bank for pot money. And you might say, huh, 
What do we need a state-backed bank for pot money? Well, the problem is, is marijuana businesses are primarily a cash game. Carrying loads of cash is dangerous. I believe there was actually a, a shooting or there was a, a there violent was a robbery yeah. in Carpinteria uh, just a couple days ago. So these marijuana dispensaries can't take their money and put it into a normal bank because the banks are regulated by federal law and marijuana is still illegal federally. So the state wants to help them out by uh, backing a banking system that would allow them to put their money in a bank account and then pay checks and pay bills and everything else. I don't know if, especially California of all states, I don't know if it's a good game for the state to get into uh, backing banks. Yeah, so I, doing a little bit of reading on this, what really concerns me is the, is the second derivative of what's going to come from this. So it'd be one thing if it started and stopped with, let, let, let's for description purposes, just calling it a checking account sort of system, right? Banks where these uh, cannabis shops can go and deposit their money and then when they need to withdraw it, and th- that's happening all across the state, right? It's an entirely different thing to then go down the road that Gavin Newsom suggests on his website. Let, m- let me read you straight from his website what he says. And this is under the titled section called Break Wall Street's Chokehold on State Finance and Develop Our Own State Bank. And here's what it says. Through low-interest public financing, we can inject more capital into building infrastructure, repairing our roads, bridges, and airports, providing fair student loans, and helping to build the 3.5 million new homes needed by 2025 to make housing more affordable. This right here is what I see as the true purpose of the California State Bank. It's going to come in under the banner of a cannabis bank, I don't see how this state government is going isn't going to turn right around and use it as the new uh, slush fund. We needed a constitutional amendment to prevent them from raiding the gas tax three times, and yes. now they're going to run a bank. And now they're going to run a bank, and they're going to. Who knows what the money is going to get used for? More slush, right? I mean, or they're trying to finance the train any way they can. Well, the banking side of me. From what I remember, this will not be FDIC insured. Exactly. That's why it's state bank. It's state bank. So will you have the trust in the state of California to put your money into that bank? Right. Well, and the other thing, too, just kind of piggyback on what John just read. Go ahead and play clip two. This is by uh, John Chang, who's the Democrat-elected California state treasurer. There will be some very hefty returns uh, for, for many financial institutions. But it's like, you know, are, are you willing to place yourself at risk, uh, the, the financial institution at risk, uh, to get, uh, in some instances, some very large returns? Right. So he's already banking on the fact that there's going to be, hey, let's take a little bit of risk and we'll get some. Well, on the treasurer's things. website, they already have their... their uh, they're ready for this pot thing. 
they're already ready. They know it's going to pass. They're going to do it. And they expect this industry, this pot industry, to be $20 billion in sales by 2021. That's only two and a half years from now. They expect this thing to explode. And then not only will they have regular sales tax, but they'll have a sin tax on top of that. I'm sure of it. I don't even know what it's going to be. And now imagine a majority, and again, the numbers are all still real fuzzy, but but large amounts of deposits buying quote-unquote CDs of the, from the California State Bank and or in savings accounts that the state can now use as collateral to, like a bank, go and lend, lend, and again, we have to use these words very loosely because in normal banking operations, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bobby, but part of the value of multiple banks competing out for people's loans is that they're doing a continual assessment of the riskiness of a certain loan to set an interest rate that's required, right? right? So when someone borrows money, they have to pay it back at a certain interest rate based on the risk. Is it that hard to see where in this situation the state is going to just, depending on the project that they want to fund and how badly they want to fund it, which if it's their own pet projects will be pretty badly, what would prevent them from just writing below market rate loans? Well, right. And and banks make their money off the loans. Like there's no money in them charging you a bank fee of three bucks per transaction or holding your money. They want your money to lend your money. But that kind of drives, uh, that drives an interesting perspective because I'm thinking if it's so lucrative, why aren't there private banks wanting to jump at the chance to do it? And what's to stop the feds from coming and confiscating that money? And how is the state not complicit in aiding and abetting any legal federal institution? <laughs> well, I'll get operation. into that in just a second. Uh, but when it came to the great financial crisis back in 2008, a lot of these smaller banks and some of the bigger ones like Countrywide, what they were doing was they were borrowing money from the federal government and the federal home loan banking system. They were borrowing money and uh, intraday borrowing costs. So you borrow money uh, in the morning, you'd settle your affairs at night, and they would continuously roll money back and forth so that they would continuously have more funds in their account for uh, FDIC purposes. But then when uh, it became a, a hassle, when it became a problem with their loans, the FDIC said, okay, you need to have real deposits from real people to sure up your vaults. And when the, when they did that, they rose the level and then they shrunk it from the, t- from the other side and said, we can only extend you so much uh, money from these intraday uh, accounts. All of a sudden, the squeeze was in. And I can see this from the state side. They're going to borrow a lot of money from the Fed. They're going to borrow a whole bunch of money. I already know they're going to do that because obviously they're not going to have deposits at the beginning. But but if there's a if there's a notable tie between cannabis and this bank, it's, is the Fed going to lend them money? Well, there you go. I don't know if they will because way back in 2014, Deputy Attorney General James Cole sent out a memo regarding marijuana-related financial crimes. The department issued guidelines preventing the distribution of marijuana to minors, uh, preventing revenue from the sale of marijuana from going to criminal enterprises, a.k.a. gangs and cartels, 
preventing diversion of marijuana from states where it's legal under state law in some form to another state, preventing activity from being used as a cover or pretext to other drug trafficking, preventing violence and the use of firearms in the cultivation and distribution, preventing DUIs in a nutshell, and preventing growing on public land. So if these banks want to do business with another state, they cannot if they have marijuana, a federally recognized criminal enterprise, on their books. You can do it. You can have a bank, and a lot of these marijuana growers right now have uh, credit unions and solely small banks who do no business outside the state as their main uh, deposits, the depositors. So it can be done, but you have to be limited on what you can do. And I don't think the state is going to be, they're going to be an intermediary of a criminal activity. There's no way that they can get around that. I don't think they can do it. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a bad game for the state to get into. And I have to believe, I, you know, like you say, Bobby, all the time, follow the money. If it's such a great idea, how come no one else has been doing it? Why do, Colorado doesn't do this, right, as far as I know. Or, or to that point, right? Why, why doesn't one of, if I somehow was a, was a contractor on uh, the high-speed rail, and I went to our local bank here and asked them, hey, I, I need a small business loan to get me through while I'm building this high-speed rail, I highly doubt they would give me the loan. I'm, I'm get, unless there was some sort of backing from the state or from the, but but just purely for me, that, that that's going to be too risky of a loan. I'm going to well, guess in Colorado, like you were saying, they they did they created a formation of cannabis banking co-ops and credit unions, but again, they have to stay within the state, and for their purposes, it's really only for cannabis. They really have to. Only put that on the books. And if you are another business, whatever, a laundromat or what have you, doesn't matter. Pick something. Do you want to put your money in the bank where at any time the federal government can come in and start seizing assets? Right. And that was kind of the my last point on it was these are cash businesses for a reason. Nobody really wants a record of the transaction in a lot of instances because you – they're a cash business because somebody is paying in cash. They're not paying with their debit. They're not paying with a check. They're paying in cash because they want it all off the books. And so I don't see a lot of these places running out and putting it into a bank account. I see more so, if so facto, laundering uh, just so you can get that money into your bank account to pay your bills. One of the things we also haven't even talked about is the level of corruption that would exist. Amongst, no such thing, John. Yeah, right. Amongst the politicians and regulators that are, quote, unquote, the head of the bank. I mean, big business and, and gets railed on all the time, and, and for good reason in a lot of cases, for crony capitalism, right? Are, are you telling me that the, the head of the state banking department is just going to be this totally benevolent angel 
that doesn't do any sort of back deals with any sort of contractor that's going to receive, as, as Gavin Newsom said, these low-interest public financing deals to build homeless shelters, new homes. It's the, the opportunity for corruption here is off the charts. Oh, I wonder which politician's brother is going to be on the board it, of directors. Exactly. Again, that doesn't happen in government. That only oh. happens with big, bad business. <laughs> right. <laughs> Never in government. Any other points? California sucks. All right. There, there you, go. you go. Although I'm looking out my window and it's beautiful today. Yeah, I got that. On that note, I think it's time for the James Woods Tweet of the Week. Beautiful. We got to work on that. It's a little clip we're playing this time, but yeah, it might change by the next episode. We'll see. Okay. This week, the original tweet comes from everybody's favorite person, Ben Rhodes. Old Ben tweeted out, The pathetic and embarrassing thing is that Trump's approach will end up hurting our farmers, workers, and companies while also surrendering our global leadership. And then he gives some some link to Trump about you know something Trump said regarding uh, tariffs, working with other countries, etc. James Woods responds, Your old boss would bow to a fire hydrant. Don't talk about surrendering global leadership. In fact, don't talk at all. <laughs> Silenced. James Woods. Oh, James. Awesome. Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay Thanks, tuned uh, next week. New podcasts every week, Wednesday, 8 a.m. On uh, Available on iTunes and on the Google Play Store. Have a great week.